everyone. David here from Foresight. This is episode five of Talking Transitions, our new podcast series with EY. If you've missed any of the previous four episodes, do make sure you go back and check them out first. This episode was recorded in the Green Zone at the COP28 Summit in Dubai on the morning of day six. Just before the panel, EY launched a new report from its Energy and Resources Transition Acceleration Model. Serge Collar refers to the report in his opening remarks and throughout the panel, and you can find a link to it in the show notes. Finally, Dr.ina Katharina Bermelberg from SLB, who is on the panel, was just a few minutes late after rushing over from the opening ceremony in the main blue zone. But she slips in without distraction, and we're grateful to her for joining us, as we are the whole panel. I hope you enjoyed the show, and please leave your feedback on our website or on social media using the hashtag TalkingTransitions, all one word, to join the conversation. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the EY stand this morning. Um, this session is being recorded as part of our podcast series called Talking Transitions, uh, a new series from Foresight Climate and Energy and EY. In this series, we are looking across the range of transitions required to reach a sustainable economy and how three key areas are facing up to the challenge, the energy and resources industry, the financial services sector and government. I'm David Weston, Editor-in-Chief at Foresight, and guiding me through the series will be key EY thought leaders from the three different areas. In today's episode, coming to you from the Green Zone at COP28 negotiations in Dubai, I'm joined once more by Serge Collar, EY's Global Energy and Resources Leader. Hi, Serge. Nice to see you again. Hey, David. How are you? I'm good, thank you. For our panel session today, we'll be talking about how the energy and resources sector needs to improve on collaboration and leverage new technologies to reach the scale of change required for a successful transition. Joining us on the panel this morning are Stuart Mullen, Chief Operating Officer for the Global Wind Energy Council, Bart Postmans, Chief Technical Officer at Developer and Utility Aqua Power, uh, and joining us shortly will be Katharina Bumelberg, Chief Strategy and Sustainability Officer for the oil field services company SLB. Please welcome our guests. Uh, Serge, maybe we could uh, begin with you. We talked in the previous episode about the critical momentum that the energy transition has now reached. Uh, and EY's new report, which came out this morning, details some of the implications of that transition. Could you set out some of the key elements uh, that are driving it and whether you feel the necessary speed has been reached? Yeah, thank you, David. So, so I'll just call out, uh, you know, a couple of very short messages. I know we're short in time, so I will definitely not do justice to the hard work of the team over the past year. But so what we basically try to do is come up, of course, with a rather unique view on the energy transition, where the starting point from our side was actually to ask ourselves, you know, how quickly is it that consumers, both industrial as well as residential and so on, you know, will adopt new technologies? And so the starting point, the assumption that we took is that, you know, if we want the energy transition to go faster, we need a solution for the end consumer, which will be better and cheaper. Right? Not because of climate reasons necessarily. I mean, early adopters will do that. But if we want broad adoption, we need to have solutions which are better and cheaper. And so we've been building a model, 50,000 data points. I'm going to spare you the details. It's across 13 jurisdictions. We've been looking at 54 technologies that could replace existing technologies, as in carbon-heavy solutions. Um, but thinking about the alternative, um, also looking across oil and gas, um, power and utilities, but also metals and mining, because, of course, we also have critical minerals that we need to take into account. So a couple of headlines, they're very short, yeah. So the good news, you could say, I'll just move a little bit on the site. Um, so we will not have slides on the podcast, but that doesn't really matter. But, you know, you could say the good news, 
broadly speaking, is that we are effectively accelerating. Yeah. And, you know, according to our predictions, if we compare to IE and some others, and we are definitely seeing an uptake on some of those solutions, specifically renewables, if you think about e-mobility, transportation, where we are definitely accelerating, we're definitely going faster than many predictions that are currently in existence. The reality, however, is that it is faster, but it is also not fast enough. Right. And so, you know, if we just look at one example, which is the renewables target, um, you know, so we stand firm, I would say, with the GRA to say that indeed we need to triple renewable capacity by 2030 compared to today. So that means that we don't need 30 percent growth. We need 300 percent growth. Right. And so that is, of course, highly problematic. Um, and so there's a real question, you know, what is it that stands in a way to go faster? Yeah. Now, what I was calling out was effectively was, you know, we need solutions that are better and cheaper for consumers. The one thing to really keep in mind is that effectively a lot of the applications that consumers have, of course, and again, consumers are broadly defined. It also includes industrials. A lot of the installations, of course, have very long lifetimes. So if we want those consumers to step away from those assets, right, either, you know, replace them immediately or at the end of life, but in some cases also ahead of the end of life, you need something which is vastly better, vastly cheaper, right? Or you need regulation that prohibits it. Yeah. So it's either one or both. Yeah. And this is of course where we see, you know, the problem. And if we look at current modeling and we think around, you know, if you look at a new, a car will last 12 years, a truck will be 15 years, domestic heating, 20 years, industrial, you know, heating solutions, also 20 years, coal plants, 30 years. So every plant that is being built right now will last another 30 years. So there is a real question. How do we basically get those assets? You know, how did we get asset attrition up is, I think, the real question. And this comes back then to acceleration. Yeah? And so just to stage today's discussion, I just called out, you know, four categories of what we call handbrakes. Yeah. So we need to release the handbrakes on the car in this case, just to go faster. Right. And so I guess we'll be exploring those uh, a bit more broadly. But so in any case, one is supply chain, obviously. So if I try to summarize it, so we need to be in a position whereby we will have a reliable but also decarbonized supply chain for the world's minerals, but also green steel, green cement. The difficulty that we see here, and there's many, right, we'll talk about those. But one of the key challenges, of course, is related to the fact that we are also building out around those new technologies. We're building out new new ecosystems, new value chain, new industries are being built up. Right. So aligning, I would say, the supply chains to support that at scale is going to be challenging. And we had examples in the wind industry and there will be more. The second one, very critical as well, was covered quite, um, you know, extensively yesterday because we had finance day. Right. Of course, it's de-risking investment. We need absolutely require investor certainty. Right. And so broadly in that category, I would talk about, you know, having clear target setting. It would in any case also be the policy frameworks. But it's also mundane stuff like permitting, right? I mean, if you push out because of permitting any business case two, three years with the current interest rates, it can kill a project. So that's a very important category. The third one, I would say of high concern, and this is where it's really good that we have companies like SLB providing solutions for that as well, right? Is that we need to be able that actually there we can transform the grids and the infrastructure to take in, of course, all of those renewables. And this is becoming, I think, highly critical. I think so far with all that has been done, I would say so far so good, right? I mean, broadly speaking, grids have been able to take in already a lot of volumes in terms of connecting DERs, right, broadly said, so distrib uh, distributed energy resources. But, you know, with the uptick that we are seeing, I mean, there's high level of concerns in the ability to continue to use copper as the main solution. 
So uh, we will need more, right? And that is actually quite broadly. And then the last one, of course, is what I call consumer access for all. And that goes back to indeed having a cheaper and better solution for consumers. But there is a real question. It's a broader one, of course. This is about many different things in there. This is about global north, global south, right? So it's not about solutions for rich people, but, you know, it's providing, you know, affordable energy for all. Also with those new technologies, and they do require a big upfront capital deployment, right? Which is, I think, challenging. And then, of course, it's also about allowing, for instance, consumers to participate into the new energy system. So I'll, I'll just leave it here with some opening comments. Um, you know, we will put a link, of course, in the podcast to the study. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I hope this sets the scene for the discussion. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks, Serge. Um, Bart, maybe we could bring you in here briefly. Um, what are the sort of challenges then uh, and breakthroughs that you anticipate over the next maybe decade um, in the transition to cleaner energy sources? Thanks. Good morning, first, and um, thanks for having us here. Um, I think most important is that we should really collectively step away from the idea that we don't have the tools, that we don't have the technologies yet for the energy transition. No? Maybe we don't have everything to go to the last kilo of uh, CO2, but we have most of what we need to realize the reduction at speed. What is really important is that the technologies which are existing or which are almost existing, and energy transition has been driven in the past 10 to 20 years by very important and very rapid energy technology development in all fields. What is important is that these technologies which are available, which are continuously being developed, which are still in the labs because more performance technologies are being prepared, we need to bring them to the field at pace and at scale. This is for me really what matters. Huh? Um, it's not as if nothing has happened. What is being installed these days is massive. My company, our company, Aquapower, here in the Middle East and in six different regions, next year and, and the two, three consecutive years, we will be installing like 15 gigawatt every year of solar and maybe five to six gigawatts of wind. So it is possible to deploy at scale, but that is what we really need. That's also where uh, in the entire picture, and, and the constraint is not that much technological, but this picture is valuable uh, because it, it is a chain indeed. Part of the chain is driven by market on the supply chain, on the demand side. Uh, customers, uh, industrial customers, all kinds of customers choose the supply chain adopts to a market situation. Problem is that one part here, grids and infrastructure, is not necessarily completely in a market logic because historically it has been like plant and a grid and in terms of stability and everything. So we need to bring this together. There is part of this which is basically in a planned economy. Still, you have to do it. And part of it which really should be driven by market development. So in terms of breakthroughs, I think really the building blocks are there. What matters is for some of them, bringing them from from the lab in, in the last stages of technology readiness to a level where you can deploy at scale, make them bankable, have demonstration projects so that every everybody f- finds comfort in it. And then the existing technologies, and frankly speaking, every year we get better and better performance from the entire global supply chain. And I insist on that point as well. From the entire global supply chain, we should find ways to bring them at scale to the field. And that requires a very close 
interaction between the different players. You don't do it with a supply chain which is completely disconnected from the developers. You do it with a very strong integration between the two. That's what we try to do. Katarina, thanks for joining us uh, at the EY stage. Um, what are the primary drivers of change in the current energy transition? Um, what does this year's progress, the progress we made in the re recent months or so, tell us about the, our approach to the transition? Okay, first, uh, thank you for having me and uh, sorry for being late. So on the energy transition, first of all, I mean, I think the first thing we have to recognize is that we are too slow uh, as we as we looked at to to get to the 1.5 degrees target. I think overall we are just too slow um, and it has lots of reasons, as we discussed, and I think we are pretty aware of it. The question is, how can we change it? Um, having that said, while the energy transition is slow, the demand for energy is rising every year and it's rising significantly. So I think this is this is one of the major issues in the energy transition that while we have to drive the transition, we need to make sure that the demand is met because otherwise we cause a lot of other problems as well. That indeed means that the current system that we have, we heavily need to work on decarbonize this system because we will have to live with the system we have for quite some time. It's not that we can see as much as I like the idea of saying we just switch and we are in the new world, it's unrealistic. So um, in, in terms of pragmatism in the energy transition, I think it, it, it has very much two passes. The one pass is to build up the new energy system of tomorrow, which is a decarbonized system, and which we are doing with the renewables and with the pledges, which I'm, which I'm a huge fan of. And I really hope that we manage to get to the triple uh, renewable energy in this 120 countries till 2030. But the second pass that for me is equally important is to get the emissions of the current system down. And that has two major points. One is energy efficiency. And I personally think we don't talk about energy efficiency enough because um, every little bit of energy that is not used is in any case better in terms of emissions than all kinds of decarbonization technologies we can use. And the second pass is decarbonizing fossil fuel use because as long as we need fossil fuels, we need to make sure that they have the, that they have the lowest carbon footprint that is available. Or we, we, we decide that we can live a completely different life setup, which potentially will not happen. And I think in this area, a lot has happened in recent years. And the fact is the technologies that we need for decarbonizing the current system are completely there. Right. We can do methane, we can do carbon capture and storage, we can do stuff like geoenergy. Um, the question is, how do we make business cases work? And for me personally, the challenge right now is how can we deploy the technologies we have as fast as possible? And how do we manage to, to get in a way the regulation and the, and the incentive in place so that this change that can happen very short term because technologies are there really happens. If I may just, I couldn't agree more. And I'm so happy that you're talking about energy efficiency. We, we too often forget we should be talking 75% of the time in every seminar, in every discussion about yeah. energy transition, I agree. about energy efficiency. Yeah. And let me give you, if you allow me, just one example, which is really relevant for the region here, sure. which is related to water, water desalination. There is a nexus between energy and water, as you know very well. Water desalination today consumes like 1% of global primary energy consumption, and it's going to be more. 20 years ago, with what was standard practice, you would need 20 kilowatt hours for one cubic meter of desalinated water. Today, 
thanks to technology progress, thanks also to the contribution of the people who have introduced these new technologies in the market, three, from 20 to three. Imagine the impact. Imagine how much primary energy consumption would be higher if that would not have happened. So we really also need to emphasize and work on these uh, um, pockets of uh, energy and emission reduction, which we have. Serge, was energy efficiency a, a part of EY's consideration during this the research? Absolutely. And um, again, also need to emphasize that. Listen, in any case, we have to pull all levers if we want to get as close as possible to the climate targets, right? And I can only emphasize, I echo also what, uh, what Bert and Katarina have been saying, which is indeed, I mean, the, the, the cheapest, but also the lowest carbon kilowatt hour of energy is the one that we don't use. Yeah. And we've seen, by the way, I think because of the energy crisis across Europe, um, but also more broadly, but certainly in Europe, that there is a vast potential to actually be more efficient. And there's been, you know, I would say, <laughs> a permanent effect i would say in terms of energy efficiency um you know in pro industry um also post i would say the and we were still in the energy crisis but not not as acute as before but some of the savings new practices that have been applied are still very much alive okay. so i think it's it's uh it's really key and also in the modeling i mean that we take into account because i mean right now we always talk about this 2080 uh, percent as in your know, in total energy primary energy consumption 20 percent as electricity needs to go up it's also very clear that you know the more we electrify I mean, of course, increasingly, the efficiency of electrification is much higher than that of thermal solutions. Sure. Right. I mean, the, the one thing that I wanted to add when I was thinking about it is that the one thing that I keep on telling to my clients is that I said, listen, I mean, there's so much money that has to be spent. Yeah. Right. So much money. So two considerations. I always say, like, you know, of any decision you take, what is the asset light version of that decision? Right. And energy efficiency, I mean, is number one. Digital, right, very clearly, is another one. Right. Leveraging somebody else's assets is number three. And then you can start thinking about building stuff. Right. So much needs to be done. I think the second consideration is also, I mean, we need to, given where we are, we have to bet on all technologies, which is why we're looking at 54 technologies in our study, which was a lot. Yeah. But I mean, th there is also, I would say, a hierarchy there, right? In terms of, you know, I would say efficient capital deployment. I mean, we already have quite mature technologies. I mean, and I have two gentlemen next to me that are very much part of very mature industries that already have achieved very high levels of efficiency mm. with more to come in the future, right? But, you know, we also have, of course, newer technologies where we need to invest in. So it's also about finding this roadmap, like, you know, where do we put our money? Because capital ultimately is scarce or scarcer, mm. um, you know, and in the end, we have a customer paying the bill. And as I said, we need to make it cheaper and better. So absolutely. Um, definitely energy efficiency is something we do should do a lot more on. Uh, and hopefully we can. We don't have time today. One of the uh, handbrakes that Serge mentioned was the supply chain uh, and the wind sector's challenges particularly in the supply chain, are very well documented. Stuart, are there lessons that we can take from the wind sector in relieving that supply chain that perhaps other supply chains can learn from? And do you see an uptick in fortunes for the wind sector soon? Yeah, thanks, David. Um, so for, but can I just go? Please, yes. Uh, so I, I agree, energy efficiency is uh, very important. What I would hate to see is uh, us spending lots of money in um, solutions for fossil fuels to decarbonise fossil fuels at the expense of clean renewable energy. And at the moment, you know, going back to the wind sector, one of the things that we uh, get criticised a lot for is the price. And I think that for a long time, wind energy has always been spoken about in terms of affordability and price. Um, 
Onshore wind is one of the most, uh, in, uh, you know, cheapest forms of new build uh, renewable energy. Offshore wind, uh, the prices have come down, and um, we've got more and more volumes. I mean, they've come down so much that you know we've we've come to a point now where the su the supply chain. You know, when we've had the COVID, we had the war in the uh, the Ukraine or the Russians invasion of Ukraine. We had this sort of perfect storm of uh, external forces that have kind of impacted on the industry, and because we've been so focused and so cost driven and tried to drive out cost in everything that we do uh, or everything that we did as an organized or as an industry I think that we reached a point where um, it's very difficult for this uh, the supply chain to make money so we had a situation where it was a race to the bottom in terms of price but it was a race to the top in terms of technology so the wind turbine manufacturers were producing bigger turbines every year they couldn't get the return on investment for those uh bigger bigger turbines uh when i worked so I, my background's with the turbine manufacturers and so when i worked for a well-known offshore wind turbine manufacturer our first four projects that we did when we sort of came back into the game they were with different models of turbines. So like they would, they would just, you know, had a bigger blade on one or a bigger uh, um, generator capacity on another. So the industry has been so focused on being able to provide more energy at a cheaper, like the LCOE to drive the uh, LCOE down and make sure that it actually is competitive. And I think that's had an impact on the supply chain. So we see now Western OEMs have had some challenges that I mean, they've been well documented. Um, and it does, in relation to your question about the uptick, it does look like the worm has turned. Uh, Vestas had a profitable quarter and looks like it's moving ahead. Uh, Siemens Gamesia has laid out a plan now for, to rebuild and to, re, to get on the pathway again. GE seems to be focusing on a, a workhorse, et cetera. So I think that the supply chain is really starting to pull in the right direction. So is there a lot of work in improving the resilience of that supply chain? Uh, definitely. So I think that it, the, the, that's one of the biggest things we've been working on, making sure how do we actually build that resilience into the supply chain? How do we di diversify our base? How do we make sure that we, you know, that we're actually doing things in a proper way, making sure that we're sourcing from responsibly and mm. uh, making sure that all of our products are actually built with that degree of uh, certainty that we're not doing the wrong things. Serge, resilience in supply chain must be uh, one of the key levers in improving and, and releasing that handbrake how do we go about improving and making sure that supply chain is secure and resilient so and, and again a very complex question because it's also technology dependent in a way right because we talked about maturity and scale um i mean if if i mean back back to the number of renewables if we say like we need to you know build a thousand uh gigawatt it was you know per year i mean it's like okay do we have the factories for that do we have the minerals for that and so on but if, if, for instance, if I look at, uh, uh, let's say, a domain which is a bit more discussed, right, and a bit controversial sometimes, which is all about EVs and batteries, and then we talk about, you know, the minerals that are sort of, you know, basically slave labor coming from Congo or what have you. So, and there are some bad stories around there for sure. But, you know, we also, in that space, we will not just have one solution. So, yes, for instance, we do need to open up new capacity. Yes, we need the permitting that goes with that. But what we're also seeing is that there's also other options, of course, that are being deployed. Yeah? So on the one hand, we see a lot of manufacturers, for instance, in the automobile industry uh, moving into virtual integration, be it by contracts or be it by actually, you know, building for capacity, also upstream. Um, so that is a key thing. Um, the other element, I think, is innovation, right? I mean, we can actually relieve our supply chains by being innovative. If I look at batteries right now, I think, you know, the most performing commercial batteries are in the 300, 350 watt hour per kilo. 
um, you know, if I look at the, the next generation will be around 500 watt hour per kilo. So energy density is changing. And as a consequence, the associated minerals, um, you know, are also being, being, uh, being changed. Um, if we look at innovation around chemistry, right? So we're moving from, you know, broadly lithium ion, sodium ions becoming important. So there's also elimination, if you will, of complexity. Um, you know, and then ultimately also recycling. So I'm just giving this as an example to say, yeah, it's going to be about stacking up capacity. We'll need licensing, social license in this case. We'll need factories being built. Supply chain needs to be extended. But next to that, there's also other solutions, right? Which is innovation, recycling, and so on. If I may, I want to offer a, maybe a, a somewhat unpopular uh, opinion on supply chain resilience. Uh, I think the, the argument of uh, insufficient resilience in the supply chain has been used by people who are actually defending a certain business. There is no supply chain which has shown more resilience after the most fundamental disturbance that we ever had in the past uh, 50 years, uh, which is a big war, a big uh, epidemic. The supply chain is back. Every time you go to the major manufacturing countries, you encounter new suppliers moving into the renewable energy space, storage space, you see new factories being opened and it's it's basically assembly manufacturing of batteries manufacturing of solar modules can be scaled up rapidly i make one exception which is mining and for sure there the investment cycles and the times needed are different and we really need to be careful there but the capacity of the big suppliers of solar modules wind turbines etc to scale up production is is not, not really the limiting factor and um, if I if I may add to that, I think one thing that really brings the resilience is that um, now in the energy transition, it's not about one technology or, or about two technologies. Where in the past we had an energy system that was very focused on, let's say, oil and gas, coal, um, nuclear, so a very few um, sources of energy. We are now entering a period where there are so many different solutions. And I think this is why... Very often, I think this is this uh, this discussion is the one technology going to make it or the other, be it in hydrogen or be it in power generation or whatever. I think this is that's for now that's not a valid discussion anymore because with the speed that we need, uh, one thing is the diversity of the of the different solutions. And let's look at whatever uh, geothermal that is not wildly deployed yet, which is a uh, which is a complete renewable power that uh, works 24-7 and weather independent. Um, and it's just starting. It's starting right now. And there's, and this will cover that, that has the chance to cover long-term part of the baseload. Um, and the advantage of this fact is that uh, it gives a lot of resilience if you are using all of these different. On the other hand side, it needs enormous investment and innovation. Mm. And this is, I think, why it's necessary that we foster a climate of um, um, of incentivizing innovation in the energy space and making sure that all the different solutions are are so far developed that they can enter the price sure. discussion, actually. Yeah, so when we look at the supply chain challenges, um, one of the things is that we see that, that, I mean, one thing is that we've all, all there's a lot of been tripling, 123 countries have signed up to the tripling or whatever the number of countries that we are today have signed up to tripling. And that's great. But 
what we see is when we look at the supply chain or when we forecast what's going on in the wind industry, we can see capacity shortages in key components around like nacelles and blades. And in some in certain areas by you know, 2025, 2026. So it, what we see that we need more of is that a lot of our we have a lot of gigawatts in the wind industry that are stuck in permitting so it the permitting is a real uh challenge for us so one thing is the investment signals that like strong commitment to uh, achieving targets but if you can't get these uh projects permitted it becomes a real stumbling block and those are the investment signals those permitting things having projects there sitting there money you know, sitting idle in the parking lot. These are the things that really grind the supply chain to the to a halt because there's no in capital then to invest in new factories, invest in these things. So, and also, you know, like when we keep pushing the innovation barrier, at some point, you know, the for example, if we take offshore wind, the offshore wind turbines are getting bigger now, and so you need new vessels. You need to have a vessel supply chain uh, with. You need the port infrastructure. All of these things take time to build. It's not like you can just flick a switch and say, "Oh yeah, we'll just you know roll this out tomorrow." You need to plan. And I, I actually think that, from a personal perspective, if I look, you know, two years ahead, I think that we've got eighteen to twenty-four months to really get these signals right and really start to get the investments right that are actually going to uh, talk about handbrakes. These are the things mm. that if, we, if you're going to reach 2030, we have to solve some of these challenges right here and right now. And maybe bu building on that, because I have, a, I would say, a source of optimism. And then maybe I would say my biggest concern talking about supply chain. I think one of the things that really changed in the past 18 months, um, and it was triggered in part by, I would say, the global energy crisis uh, following you know the uh, the war in uh, in Ukraine is is the fact that you know because of the thinking around energy independence energy resiliency uh, reliability um, I think also a lot of countries actually have really stepped up their commitments and their thoughts around you know there is a real opportunity we're going to be making money here and you know when I'm talking about acceleration we're talking about technology but you know realistically if you look at a country like uh, like Chile or also here in the Middle East you can really see how a lot of nations now are very deliberate and have actually state policy to actually combine all of their natural resources and really exploit the opportunity associated with the energy transition and you know if we can get that going right so for instance Chile thinking like you know rather than exporting just iron ore I mean they will combine it with some of the cheapest green electricity in the world Right, because they have the desert in Atacama, they have fantastic wind locations in Patagonia, right? I mean, they can actually export a crude iron, right? But clean crude iron. So I think supply chain wise, I think that's an element of acceleration that I think we can certainly build upon. Um, and this is just one example, but as many, um, if I would see it, and if I'm thinking about, you know, the time it takes, um, and you were talking about, you know, for the wind industry, it could be 18 months to two years. I mean, mining is my big concern because that does take a lot of time, right? It could be seven to 12 years to open up a new mine and bring that to capacity because you need to build all of the supply chain around that, social license and so on. And the other one for me is cables. Yeah, um, it's not just copper, it's really cables. So those are for me the two biggest areas of concern, I would say. I think everything else is solvable, even if it takes time. Yeah, but I think those I'm a bit more worried about. We're constantly talking about new technologies being developed and existing technologies scaling up. Is there a value in stopping that development, using what we've got? As Bart said earlier, we've got the technologies to maybe get to 90% decarbonization over the next up to 2050. If we stop developing the technologies, deploy what we've got, free up the supply chains, have a 10, 20 year horizon, would that help accelerate these things and make things faster? 
For me, there's no stopping of development because all of this is driven by a market context, really. Market context in which projects are competing, countries are competing, um, different energy vectors are competing in a way. In the end, markets will decide and markets will drive to more performance. So if you have the most efficient solar panel today, maybe two years from now, the same panel will not find its place in the market anymore because electricity prices would be higher. If we would continue to use those panels, then we pay more for electricity. If some countries in the world would decide to do so, then their electricity is higher than anywhere else. Then their industry becomes less competitive. So all is connected. There's no stopping innovation. This will continue to happen. It's maybe more incremental innovation in the existing core technologies. We don't, we don't really need to invent something completely new, which hasn't been thought of yet. It's really improving the performance of what we have. Uh, generation after generation of sub-technologies and bringing them to the market. And I think sometimes for, especially when you look at, not about renewables, not even about energy efficiency, because the market is there, dynamics are there, but the new kid on the block, which is really hydrogen, green hydrogen, there we still need some massive steps, not in terms of R&D, but in well, really going to the market. And it's not possible for everyone. It's not possible everywhere. We have been able to do so with our flagship project in Saudi Arabia, Naom Air Products Aquapower. We are building right now a 2,200 megawatt electrolyzer facility, which will be exporting 230,000 tons of green hydrogen per year. This project is in construction. This is only possible if you have a few really convinced companies who know that you need to make a first step and then the second step will come and the industry will kick in and suppliers will come and the next electrolyzer will be better. But somebody has to take the first step. We have been used to do so in several sectors. I think in hydrogen, it's still very much necessary that we see this kind of initiative. Uh, one of the things I think would help here is uh, we talk about standards, I mean, and standardizing things. So uh, a lot of people in our industry, when we look at wind turbines that have gotten bigger and bigger and grown exponentially. So the wind industry is an industry that's been driven by engineers right from day one. So engineers always love to engineer stuff and build bigger stuff and engineer stuff. So so people talk about um, like freight containers, that, that, that's been standardized for years. People talk about the aircraft industry, like whether you know, a, the A380, does that have a place in the modern society? So bigger is not always going to be better if you can actually agree on what the standards that you need and actually can you, com uh, can you actually drive these things and drive standards. If you look at what's happened in the wind industry, we've seen a rapid increase in the number of gigawatts and megawatts that we produce each year, but the number of unit sales to actually make these hasn't really, that's been sort of, that's sort of plateaued. And no one talks about that because that's what, that's where the investment is. And that's where you get your payback from all of those engineering hours, all of those development hours. And so I think that having standards within the wind industry and, and getting people to agree to those standards. So, and then you can actually optimize your engineering, optimize the output, but you're doing it within a, a standardized framework. I think that actually drives a lot. Maybe building on it, but I'm going to pass it on to you, Katarina, because I've also a question actually for you. No, the, 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 no, the, the, the short answer to David was actually a very interesting question. Like, I mean, why don't we just do what we do now? We do it faster, better, more focused. Yeah, I should be all right. 
the one thing that I want to call out is that, and that's the interesting thing for every single technology that will be deployed, that is being deployed right now. I would say in a, in a bit of a simplified way, I would say, I mean, they will also go through three phases. Yeah. So there's going to be an installation phase. We start building the stuff. We put it down and this is what we talked about mostly. Right. But you know, as we change the energy system by deploying that technology, right. I mean, we'll have to integrate also all of those assets and then in the end, so in the phase of integration and then there will be a phase of transformation. Right. As in they will have effects that goes beyond, I would say the individual technology. And that's why it's going to be critical that, you know, innovation continued innovation will be critical. I think that's also where we need players like SLB, right. That actually knit stuff together as well. Right. So, I mean, maybe that's a perspective. So beyond the installation phase, Katarina, I mean, what is it that you would see if, if I can ask a question here, right? Hey. So, you know, so beyond the installation, you know, what are the biggest challenges that you would see or the developments that you think need to be done with digital platforms, integrating renewables? Um, because when they come at scale, I mean, that's another complexity then that, that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, and I think it goes very nice in, uh, in line with uh, the standard topic that we just had, right? Um, so exactly as you said, beyond the pure installation, I think one thing that is going to make a major difference is that we manage to really use the data out of what is available, be it in all of the different industries that can be um, emissions in the existing energy system as well as the new energy system. And what we, I think what we actually need and which will make a great difference is that we have the platforms available to a measure what we see in terms of emissions um, and then be from what we measure be able to report it and this reporting is very important too that we get to a standardized certified reporting that can be deployed globally um, and then based on this we are able to kind of find decarbonization pathways um, and and kind of get to the next step but but this groundwork that needs to happen and i think all of that is actually right now under development and uh, and uh, we are working on a sustainability platform actually for our to abate industries for exactly this and it is it is open for very different industries and the clear the clear goal is to get efficiency because just based on this data you will be able to get to efficiencies and then to um, having the data available, report it, and then find the best decarbonization pathways. And I think this is a very important part of the transition. That's something that's under development. Coming back to your question, should we stop development? The clear answer is no, because we will need it to get to the next level. Um, and at the same time, I think we need to form the first consortia that really implement these and, uh, and, and find ways to certify, to get the right standard. And that's in lots of different places. For example, I was in a methane discussion before and methane has exactly this topic, right? There's no standardization. There's no standard reporting. It's a very low hanging fruit, but the fact is that we need this groundwork. Otherwise we will, it will not happen. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to open up to questions from the audience. So if you do have any uh, questions for our panel, please uh, do raise your hands. There'll hopefully be a microphone uh, coming your way very soon. Before we get there, uh, just one question on uh, collaboration then. Uh, we talked about sort of market dynamics and developing technologies and because they're market edge, but is there a, a, an argument for greater collaboration between companies uh, and uh, to strengthen supply chains as well? Uh, so yes, <laughs> yes, yes, there is. 
Um, so we have, so the Global Wind Energy Council, we're, so we're an association, so we represent industry and other associations. So by nature, we build collaboration into that. And now we've part of, we've helped form the Global Renewable Alliance, which is an a collaboration with other technologies to work through these common challenges. I mean, there is there are so many common challenges that we that we have, um, and we also need to be on the same page. You know, we ha and I think that for for too long, all of the renewable technologies were kind of pitted against each other. Um, and now, by being able to have a single renewable alliance, we can talk with a single voice. And I mean, you can see how much traction that message is gotten now in a forum like this. So I think that there is definitely need for greater collaboration. There's definitely need for uh, for us to have mature conversations about actually what we need to be able to unlock some of these uh, areas. And I think that, you know, in my role, I go around and I speak to a lot of governments around the world. And I think that, you know, governments are looking for ways and they're looking to us as an industry to maybe put aside our competitive differences for making money in that market to work out how can we actually accelerate the market? How, what can we do? What are the things that we actually can do here that can actually build a pathway that's going to accelerate the market uptake? And I think what uh, what we have to um, what we have to recognize is that we are asking players that have never been working together in the past, right? If we think of hydrogen, for example, um, suddenly there players work together that have no um, that have no history together, that have no defined T's and C's, and this is something that that we are all developing right now but but it but it takes time and it's not easy right carbon capture and storage it's a that we need companies working together that didn't have any um that didn't ha have any connection in the past and i think you i think you see it in cop you see it in conferences like sarah week where suddenly a complete different set of players participate because gas companies work with power generation work with uh primary energy generation so um but all of this is a huge, I mean, that's a huge shift and a huge challenge um, and it needs capacity to drive it forward. I really like that point because that's exactly what we're seeing in the wind industry. Like now with the hydrogen derivative that, okay, we're taking electrons to molecules and now that, I mean, we've got a complete different range of players in this area. That's, yeah. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just jump on the consumer bit of it, right? Because that is really something when you talk about collaboration. I mean, we tend to think about industry and government and so on. But I mean, back to the handbrake around consumers. I mean, the consumers are a very vital part, of course, of this new energy system, not because they're consumers only, but also because they have assets and the ability to produce, right? And so with that in mind, I think great example, right? Because you talked about CCS. Yeah. So I was recently in, uh, you know, in Rotterdam, in the port of Rotterdam, and really delighted to see you know, I would say it's a very strong collaboration between, I would say, you know, big industrial competitors on the oil and gas side, um, ready to deploy investment. So they were just before final investment decision to um, actually start up, I would say, a CCS project, which would deliver about or which would store about 10 percent of the total ports emissions, which is massive, mm. right, at a price point of 80 to 100 euros per ton of carbon, which is the Portus project, which is amazing. Also on the consumer side, by the way, when you think about collaboration, I mean, the consumers also have to be the stewards of the network, right? I mean, with the numbers, the volumes that we have ahead of us, there's no way we can manage a new energy system without this collaboration and inclusion also of the end consumer. Right. I mean, the amount of flexibility needed will be exceeding anything that we can build um, economically. Yeah. So both with price signals as well as end consumers deploying their own assets, be it their heat pumps, their cars, what have you, this will not work. So collaboration is the name of the game. Absolutely.
Uh, any questions uh, from the audience at all? Please yeah. introduce yourself. Oh, hey, yeah, sure. It's Josh Matthews, and I think I'm somewhere between an analyst, activist, and politician. I'm not quite sure how to how to describe that at the minute. But I wanted to pull up on this paradox of having to, so we don't have time to not use the systems we currently have, but we also need to fundamentally, systemically transform every system that we have. I think we've gone to the point where the onus is now on everyone with the levers to pull in the old system or in the new systems to come together to show that those building blocks of the new systems work on the environment front, all the people front and the economic front. And hopefully that creates some kind of critical mass that can pull policy, consumer behavior and all of industry into alignment with with where we need to be. So in terms of a question, I'm always curious, like, what examples in your head could be that critical mass that does have that? systemic effect at the speed and scale that that we need i think it's it's an important question and i'm really glad you used the word transformation of the system because i think it's a transformation it's not building a new system transformation you can do in steps every single change contributes to the transformation and the energy systems when we talk about the infrastructure of the energy world not only power but all the energy fluxes has constantly been changing, has constantly been adapted to new market realities. Introduction of liquefied natural gas some time ago. Introduction of combined cycle power plants 20, 30 years ago when they became massive everywhere. Energy efficiency increased massively compared to what we had before. The coal transport adjusted to it. All these things are constantly being adjusted. We need to do the same thing. And that requires indeed collaboration between different economical actors and collaboration or alignment with the regulatory system behind it. I think really that's what it is. If we keep this, there's a market dynamic and the market dynamic where it goes is very clear. We just need to be sure that we don't have regulatory obstacles to the market dynamic. And there is a big playing field between, well, market actors uh, in all stages and the political system around it. Uh, Can I give you a a very practical example from the world of wind power? So there's uh, a port in Denmark called Espia, the port of Espia in Denmark, which started off as a little fishing port. And then uh, the oil and gas sector came in and it became a big oil and gas port. And then over the last 12 to 15 years, it's transformed into a renewables port where it deploys wind power. And so you can actually see the economic development of this town. So it's actually had a transformational effect on the community. It actually had like it stimulated the indirect supply chain. It's given Denmark a a lot more uh, energy um, security because of the the ports going in. It's driven a lot more economy because it's they've used the port of Espia to actually build out a lot of the North Sea projects. So, I mean, there's and there's. Things like this, there's ports in Hull and there's ports in uh, in the US that they're doing as well. So there's so many examples of these where, where we actually engage as an industry to build community benefit, to use the system and to change, to, to actually get that critical mass. Because it's no, we, we need everyone on this journey. We need to have people with us. And so we need to, you know, take the, the fisheries community, the, the, the navies, that all of the other civil society in these journey with us. And so this is what we try to do. And we spend a lot of time, well, the Global Wind Energy Council spends a lot of time with our partners looking for these transformational opportunities as well. But what happened to the, the fishermen at SBA and the oil workers at SBA? 
Where are they, they now? They transformed. They, I mean, the, the industry's trans... Those... It, if, it, if, it, if you've got a sunsetting industry, uh, like the fisheries still exist, but if you've got a sunsetting industry like oil and gas, we need to be a federate. We need to be there. Needs to be room in our tent for people to transition into our area. I mean, because you've worked in, there's a lot of the skill sets that actually are valuable, and we we need so many more people in our industry. I mean, there has to be room in the tent, so we bring them on board. And so hopefully we don't need the oil and gas workers anymore, and so they're welcome to come and join the world of wind power. Um, what I really like about your question is that I think we need exactly what you were asking for. What is going to what is going to bring us over a certain threshold? And I think you can see it in solar, you can see it in wind. Um, what we need is prices that are compare that are completely competitive but we will only achieve that via scale so the question is how can we fast scale and for this fast scaling and for this fast industrialization what we need is the is the public private partnership so we need the we need the the governments to come up with the regulation and the incentive to make the co2 business cases work to be honest because otherwise nobody will put um, we'll put the prioritization on the topic. That's just not how the world works. So I think besides the markets developing, we really need this combination of, of putting the right priorities. And this is driven by regulation and by incentives, as we can see in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as in Europe with um, Repower EU. And we just need that on a far broader scale to get exactly about uh, to what he was asking for to be able to scale. Okay. Uh, very quickly, uh, gentlemen at the back. Thank you very much. Uh, fascinating conversation. My name's Andy Cox. I'm the um, head of energy transition at Howden, the global insurance broker. I, you've talked about a lot of areas, but you haven't really got into the financing challenge. And, and the question I'd really like to ask the panel, how do you see the role of insurance when it comes to the, you talked, Serge, about de-risking? Can, can the panel just um, give their comments about how you see the role that insurance could play in de-risking when it comes to finance? We need, we need a certain level of comfort from the insurance companies with the introduction of new technologies. No, that, that's very clear. And, and the introduction at scale. I'm not saying it's not happening, but it's a necessary condition to get the, the financing uh, closed on, on the projects. And it requires also a bit of anticipation, really, because you really discover the risks and the, the possible impact uh, um, when when the technologies are at the pilot and the demonstration phase and that's really where the interaction needs to happen and where we try to make uh, the insurers comfortable with uh, what they probably will see at scale being proposed in in the new project i think it's a necessary element if we would run into problems there then it's over and out yeah, and I would say, I mean, there's certainly no no definitive uh, answer. I'm getting actually pulled in quite a bit in conversations with insurance companies. The uh, inevitably, I mean, it it always is a a big technology discussion, right? And I'm certainly not claiming I know all technologies, but the reality is that if you look at a lot of new technology, and it can be, I mean, we talk about offshore wind, but for instance, floating offshore wind is a whole set of new challenges. And again, in terms of you know, from an insurability perspective you know, creating again new questions, right? There's lots of discussions out there around SMRs. I mean, also on that one, again, you know, how do we sort of ensure and cater for the associated risks, you know, just to make sure that, you know, the investability becomes better. So I'm thinking that insurance is really a key element of ensuring that investability. Um, but in view of the technology roadmap that still lies ahead of us, I think we need potentially more collaboration again. We talked about it. 
um, you know, uh, between the different sectors to make sure that also in the early stages of development, that there's a better appreciation of real risk, because otherwise there's always an overestimation and therefore it will be more expensive. Thank you, Saj. Uh, there was one more question down at the front here, just very quickly, if we can. Uh, hi, thank you for this conversation. Uh, my name is Dr. Amara Farooq Malik, um, and I'm from Settler Consultants Canada, Inc. So my question is actually maybe a mix to everybody, because um, um, so I'm, I'm sitting in the green zone this time, not in the blue zone, even though I'm a lawyer. And um, I want to bring this very interesting mix of different elements together, because I feel that governments are not acting at the speed at which businesses are perhaps able to act. And the reason why I'm sitting on this side of the fence, if I can call it, is because I want to find solutions and maybe find ways to create strategies to create that um, that speed, that scale that is required right now. So maybe that's coming back to your uh, Dr. Katrina's point about finding, you know, everybody's trying to find the, those metrics to uh, assess what is that standardized measurement mechanism that we can come up with. And it seems that everyone is working on that right now, but they haven't got there yet. You know, uh, and we do need the regulators to step in, but they seem to be there's the politics involved, which holds them back in a lot of things. So maybe it's a holistic approach is required right now. Uh, and more collaboration is required to get there. And um, uh, I just wanted to appreciate, uh, you know, this conversation. I feel it's it's still in, in, in transit form. Sure. Maybe the solution is in transit form. If, if anybody would want to add to that. Uh -huh. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it, it, that this was a very nice summary um, to to be able to get to faster industrialization and faster scaling. We need a close collaboration between the private sector and the administrations and the governments. And um, and I think they are very good examples. And we see a nice example in Saudi, for example, right now with the CCS hub, where the government basically steps in, creates the hub and, and pay, basically pays the emitters for or, or incentivizes the emitters uh, to be part of the solution. And solutions like this, we need globally because that drives the technology, that drives the deployment of technology and that enables the industrialization. And, and um, it's a good question how we can foster more of this collaboration. But, but I must say one thing that gives me hope, so to say, is, for example, this COP, because I think it's a very united, uh, it's a very united discussion. And that's what needs to happen. Is it fast enough? No. Is it a step in the right direction? I think yes. So uh, briefly. Yeah, just one point in addition, I agree that the speed of change is not the same everywhere in the world. There are places in the world which are really fast moving. Look at China, look at Saudi Arabia, look at the Middle East in general. Of course, it's easier when you have very cheap renewables in your country. We can do projects here which you cannot do anywhere else, but it's happening. And don't forget that many industries in the end, they will have to go to where energy cost is low. So this has an impact on everyone. Sure. Yeah, so I think that uh, the political systems in most countries where you have like a three to four year term of office and that you can actually politicize energy policy and you, it's an easy win because you can actually uh, have some challenge. So if you've got an ambitious government that comes in with new policies, they've got like that three to four years. And I mean, if we're talking, for example, like an offshore wind park, that's like a nine, you know, like nine to 10 years from the time we start talking about it to the time we're putting turbines in the water. So I think that, I mean, we, we need to have 
it comes back to permitting. We need to have give governments greater technical assistance to be able to get them to go further to get these uh, projects to a tipping point quicker, where the next change of government can't uh, squash the because we, we see that happen all the time where you have a boom market under one government and then it stalls and then the whole industry is you've got stranded assets over the industry because you just don't know what to do with them and it's happened time and time again so we do need to work through those yep. Any well i think a lot has been said yes yeah no i mean i think the 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 addition i think to the uh, or maybe the complement to the conversation is that if you if want to go if you want to go faster i'll go back maybe to the start yeah Again, we need to have solutions which are, you know, better and cheaper than the alternative. Yeah, not just better just for CO2, but they have to be better and cheaper than the alternative for for customers to go for mass adoption. And I think we touched upon a lot of those elements. Um, I think on the industry side, I mean, it's very clear that if you want to see capital deployments, they want to see returns, mm. right? And that's a, just a reality. Yeah, returns and renewables are very thin right now. So there is this question about investability, making it better. Um, you know, and then there's another question, which is the other side of the coin, which is, you know, are we indeed, you know, paying for the full cost, I would say, of the existing? And this is where you talk about carbon pricing, which is a very difficult topic, very mixed, you know, different in different places. Um, but, you know, I would say between those two, I think we will see acceleration. But but so we will continue to focus on making things better and cheaper for consumers by working with, you know, with the industry players. That is our focus. Thanks, Serge. Yeah, frustratingly, that's all we have time for today. My thanks go to Katharina, Stuart, Bart and Serge, the whole of the EY team, uh, the AV team here, and to our wonderful audience here in Dubai. And for those listening at home, please do share your thoughts on social media. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Talking Transitions, and we'll see you again next time.